You're listening to WRIR LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio, with me, Naomi Isaac, where we interrogate racial narratives in our space, place, and time of so-called Richmond, Virginia, the falling capital of the Confederacy. The destruction of the earth is inherent to the myth of white supremacy. And this principle has been a central part of the current US occupation here in North America for centuries. From the ridiculous establishment of the so-called new world to the violent idea of manifest destiny, white supremacy has always taught that the total domination of the land and all its creations is an inherent right of white men. In fact, it is the myth of white supremacy that created distinctions between the natural world and the people who inhabit it. And under this world order, empires have come to know the earth only by what they can take from it. As we continue to fight for the total liberation of all colonized beings, it is critical for us to understand that caring unconditionally for the land is resistance to whiteness and European domination. The accelerating climate catastrophe calls upon us to re-establish a relationship to the earth as well as connect the struggles of the land to the broader movement for total freedom. This week on Race Capital, we explore the many ways that the American empire is fueling environmental destruction in Black, Brown, and Native communities, and how those oppressed folks are fighting back against this persisting settler colonial violence. First. I sit down with Maria Torres Lopez, she, her, ella, the founder of Diaspora and Resistencia, where we discuss the toxic coal ash being dumped across Puerto Rico by a Virginia power company known as AES, as well as other forms of environmental violence impacting PR communities. Maria delves into the topic of total sovereignty for the Puerto Rican people as the question of PR statehood continues to become a national discussion. Next, we hear from Erica Vincent, the Network Engagement Director of PowerShift Network, She, Her, Hers, where we talk about PSN's upcoming virtual convergence featuring guest speaker Dr. Angela Davis. Later, Erica gives us all the tea on Johnny Appleseed and we discuss how COVID-19, white nationalism, and state-sponsored violence are fueling environmental injustice in BIPOC communities. Finally, Thelonious Cook, a farmer and the owner of Mighty Thundercloud Edible Forest, he, him, his, talks with us about the importance of Black food sovereignty, as well as the legislative racism that keeps Black farmers on the margins. This week, we skip the reframe and hop right into it. Stay tuned to hear from Maria Torres Lopez with Diaspora in Resistencia. My name is Maria Torres Lopez. I live in Laxahashi, Florida, and uh, I work with National Nurses United. But for the purpose of this interview, I am the founder of Diaspora and Resistencia. So I just wanted to dive right into Diaspora and Resistencia and, you know, have you tell our audience a little bit more about your current campaigns, specifically um, when it comes to coal ash and the Virginia-based power company AES? Yes. So Diaspora Resistencia has worked in coalition with groups in Puerto Rico who has been against specifically the community that's been against the ashes in 
Peñuelas and Guayama because in Puerto Rico, the ashes are in different towns and those towns have a high level of uh, cancer clusters as well as their waters have been contaminated because the company hasn't done the right, um, have put the right covers on, on the ashes, on the side of the ashes to make sure they don't run off. And then also the mountain, it's literally a mountain that they have over there every time there is wind and it gets really windy, you know, the ashes fly all over the place. So the campaign we've done here is supporting and amplifying the voices of the Puerto Rican people in Puerto Rico that are fighting against it. Uh, we did a few campaigns of contacting the company directly and letting them know what they were doing wrong and then doing Twitter storms against them. Uh, this was about two years ago. The ashes are now traveling from Puerto Rico to Florida, and which you know combines the the issue of environmental issues is everyone's problem, and it usually affects regardless of where you live. Usually affects the disenfranchised and the poor. Um, here they are. The ashes travel by boat to Tampa. And then from Tampa, they get on a big truck and they get to St. Cloud, Florida. And they are the group that is called Osceola Fights Back, have been working on stopping the ashes from being dropped there because they're dropping them in their specific section within their landfill. But that landfill doesn't have the correct covers under the soil to ensure that there is no encroaching, encroaching of the ashes once there is rain and things like that. And so they've been doing a lot of work against the company, but also um, speaking out against the commissioners that approved for the ashes to go to San Cloud. Yeah, and I heard that, you know, AES has been uh, like redistributing coal ash, not only to Florida, but I also saw something about them moving it to Georgia as well. So this seems like basically a practice they're determined to continue. And it's seeming like there's not a proactive or effective response from elected leadership on putting checks on this type of violence. No, no. And, um, you know, it's specifically to... San Cloud, the commissioner that was pushing for it, uh, AES had funded part of his running campaign. Uh, so that was an issue there. And, but because they have gotten pushback, you know, the first day, the reason why in the Puerto Rico they signed the contract is because they said that they were going to move the ashes out of Puerto Rico and the ashes were never to stay in Puerto Rico. They decided to move them to Dominican Republic. I forget the name of the specific community. Um, but if you if you search for it, you can find it because it was very, very largely broadcast that they were moving them to Dominican Republic, to this specific community. Then this specific community started to have a lot of health issues. And so they was pushed back and fight of the people and they basically kicked them out. And so they started to leave the ashes in Puerto Rico because the Dominican Republic government will no longer accept it. Accept it. And so now because there is pushback in Puerto Rico and because the mountain that they have of ashes there it has grown too large and is not really in, in protocol and, and, and under the regulations supposed to be, they started to moving them out of there and they have some in Tampa that they live in the port because they cannot take it all at once to San Cloud. And so they're redistributing it all over the place because they don't know what to do with it. And the issue, at least between Florida and Puerto Rico, is that there is push in favor 
of solar energy, right, in both places, because both, both the state of Florida and the country of Puerto Rico, they both have sun year all year long, and they could be having a lot more of solar energy being produced at a mass scale. But in both places, that type of energy consumption is being, it's not being put forth and it's not being elevated by the government, right? They, they want to continue using the fossil fuels. They want to continue the status quo when it comes to energy production and energy consumption. Yeah. And I wanted to just given, like you said, the government kind of just fueling these things that we know are unsustainable when it comes to protecting human life. Um, and so no. I think when you know, for me, my family lives in the uh, Virgin Islands. So I think when you live in these U.S. territories, it's a lot easier as a person on those lands to understand the impacts of settler colonialism. So I just wanted to know if you could maybe define what we mean when we talk about settler colonialism and the way that it kind of stifles sovereignty. Settler colonialism, like you mentioned, anytime you live in a, outside of the United States on one of their territories, all of their territories are used for a very specific thing, right? And each territory has their own kind of way in which the United States uses them. Um, for Puerto Rico, they have used the country uh, for military purposes specifically, and they have used life ammunition in Vieques and Culebra, and those those towns, which are islands as well, had uh, at those times high level of cancer clusters as well. When it comes to the use of peel to not to not get pregnant, that was uh, Puerto Rican women were the ones that have to be they didn't were taking, but it was basically the study was done on them. And so we're seen as use, right? We're not we're not 100% humans. We are to be used for the benefit of the American government and the American people. And in many instances, the American people don't know these things are happening in their name, right? So I want to ensure that I'm not blaming all American people because for the most part, they don't know what is being done under their name. And uh, so those three things are the ones that are the largest in Puerto Rico, the energy consumption and the energy uh, creation. Um, how they use people for different for different treatments and see how it goes, and um, and then the military. The military was really really big, still big in Puerto Rico, but it was you know they had really large areas that they took and and that they still an environmental issue there because they never cleaned them. Um, they're supposed to be specifically for Vieques. They're supposed to be using these specific boxes that allow for the explosives that are still there to be um, exploded, <laughs> but in a in a controlled way. So if they're they're in the sand, then the sand don't fly away all over the place. If they're under the water, then you can grab all of that that got contaminated and explode it in there and not run through the rest of the of the ocean. Um, but that's not what they're doing. They're doing open air explosions. They're doing under the water explosions, just as if nothing, uh, as if Congress had not told them that that they cannot do that. Specifically to San Cloud, uh, the the pushback was really big, and uh, and the community was very organized. The Aspen resistance specifically went there to one of their town halls, and uh, they gave a breakdown of the fight that had been happening in Puerto Rico against AES for the last, uh, at that moment, it was almost like eight years. Um, and then we gave them a breakdown of the money that they were going against, 
right? We wanted to ensure that we created a solidarity that the Puerto Rican people didn't want them to be sick. And so we are in solidarity with you guys. Um, but we also wanted to ensure that they understood that they're going against an internal corporation that is a multi-million dollar company. Yes, here going against Dominion has been a huge issue. So just understanding like how how deep that and hard that fight is to go against these huge power um, based companies. I have like so much respect for y'all to be in the fight for eight plus years. And so I kind of just wanted to move on, touching on what you were saying about this exploitation of Puerto Rico. And, you know, I find it funny that, you know, the the government will take and take and take so much from Puerto Ricans. But then when it comes to the way that they're exacerbating climate catastrophe and how it's directly impacting Puerto Ricans, and then there's no aid. Um, can you kind of talk to me about the way in which the acceleration of, of climate destruction under capitalism has had an impact on Puerto Ricans, specifically with uh, the recent hurricanes, such as Hurricane Maria, um, and the way that the government response was, you know, essentially failing. Yes, that was really, really crazy. And it was something that I think lifted the veil uh, to something that many Puerto Ricans have known. Um, other Puerto Ricans have not known because maybe they live um, in a more affluent area of Puerto Rico. Uh, but it also led the international community know how it's not only capitalism, but it's the policies around it. Uh, to give you a very, very concrete example. So Hurricane Irma happened and there was some destruction, but it wasn't as massive. And then Hurricane Maria came and it completely liberated the country. And we have in Puerto Rico, there is the Jones Act, right? It's, it's an American law and it's a Jones Act maritime law, which for Americans is very important because it ensures workers' rights for people who work in that industry. But within that law, there is a specific section with Puerto Rico. And that section doesn't allow Puerto Rico to have international trade without that trade coming with a tariff, right? Uh, so while some people might want to say, well, you guys can still do international trades and international, you know, ha have these shipments from other countries come to you, you just guys, you just don't do it. That's not the reality because within capitalism, the point is to have the largest profit you can get for the least, the least work or the least money spent, right? And so if you're telling a corporation that if they're coming to you and you wanna do business with them, but they're gonna to have to pay extra to be able to do business with them, then that automatically there is a deterrent. And, and then there is the other part that we as Puerto Ricans, because we have been moving away from the agriculture and there's many reasons for that, we import 90% of what we consume in Puerto Rico. And 90% of that comes from the United States. So it's a direct, that law and capitalism itself, it's a, it's a direct way to keep Puerto Rico being those 3 million people hostage to only do business with American companies and to be able to move all that money into the United States of America. Um, the call from Puerto Rico in regards to that law specifically is not to abolish it because if you look at Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico has the, in comparison to the United States, the best workers' rights there are. So we don't wanna take workers' rights away, but we also wanna ensure that we don't continue to be enslaved over a archaic law that doesn't reflect 
not only the values of the American people, but what we want to do as a country in Puerto Rico. So you're, you're touching on um, kind of my next question about self-determination, because right now a lot of people are uh, talking about, you know, statehood for Puerto Rico and what that could look like. I kind of just want to ask you about the conversations taking place in Puerto Rico about statehood. Um, you know, as we know that many people are seeking for land and political sovereignty uh, for indigenous Puerto Ricans. Yeah, so we can tie that up also to the Jones Act, because so that part of sovereignty and self-determination after Maria happened, we had countries, international countries who were willing to help and send humanitarian aid and they couldn't because of the Jones Act. The Jones Act was only lifted for about two weeks, I believe. And it was not enough time for these shipments to make it there. And so there is that and the issues with human rights when it comes to that. And then there is the issue of self-determination. Puerto Ricans have never been able to vote in a clear, binding referendum or plebiscite. And so this is very important to mention because the moment you start a plebiscite or, or a referendum without the good and the binding, the Congress making a binding, you're automatically telling people this doesn't count. And if you're automatically telling people this doesn't count, then not enough people are gonna go to vote, which is what has happened. Um, on the last plebiscite, even though they tried to make it sound like over 50% of the population voted for statehood, the reality is that only about 50% of the Puerto Rican people voted, which is very strange because we usually vote in the 80s and 90 percentages. Um, but only then from there, about 50% voted for statehood. That means that about 25% voted for statehood when you count everyone. So that's a very important point. And then the other issue is that these plebiscites and referendums have never included an educational process as to what we're voting on. If we're voting for independence, what does it look like? What is the timeline? What are we giving up? What are we gaining? What is the uh, process between uh, all the other taxes that we already paid, right? Like the social security and Medicaid. How is the United States gonna work around that? How are they gonna refund us? Is there gonna be reparations for all the things they have already taken? All these things, these conversations don't happen at least at the, at the higher level because people talk about this, right? But the folks that are bringing the referendums up and the laws to be able to make these referendums happen don't speak about these things. And so the same thing with statehood. What's the time frame? What are we gaining? What are we losing? There's many people in Puerto Rico who believe in statehood, who also wants to keep their national anthem and their national sports team. Is that possible if you're a state? But these things are not conversed and these things um, our people are not educated on as to what is Congress thinking about these issues? Are they thinking, are they agreeing? They're not agreeing, and they're also not in the bills that they're putting forth. So we're really voting on these things in a very blinded way without the education uh, and the timeline as to how that will really look like. And so that automatically puts people off and says, well, am I voting for this? This makes no sense. I don't ever feel as though at least the mainstream conversation here in the mainlands of the U.S. ever delves into all those questions or those nuances about, you know, how does statehood or not statehood actualize Puerto Rican freedom? I can tell you that in Puerto Rico, specifically, they talk about these issues every day. 
and they talk about their right to self-determination. And there's many people who understand statehood as the culmination of colonization in which you will allow for American people to come and have a playground and Puerto Ricans will be the ones that are serving them in all areas. And that's not self-determination. That's what we call the neo plantation. We don't want no neo. Just to kind of move into our last question, we all here on Race Capital like to ask our guests what their privilege is and how you use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy. So what is your privilege and how do you use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy? So my privilege as a diasporican is the fact that I'm here, is the fact that I can expand their voices. And even though this this might sound like strange, the reality is that Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico are never taken into account. They're given lip service. They're given lip service by both parties here in the States, Um, but they're given lip service. And when they are bringing up these ideas and these um, processes they would like to see, they're giving lip service, but when it comes to writing those bills, then they're not taken into account. Um, A very good example is this new statehood bill that just came out. Again, it doesn't have any processes, it doesn't have any timeline, which is something that people in Puerto Rico want to see. And then when it comes to the other uh, bill that we're very excited about, which is the self-determination bill that Nidia Velasquez and AOC are putting forth, uh, still missing certain key components that in Puerto Rico they have already been talking about for the last two years. And so we submitted amendments and they're changing those things to ensure that we're not only her, but we're taking into account. So that's a good step forward. But all of that to say that my my position of privilege here is that I can have these direct correlations with people who are writing these laws and I can bring them to the table and say, listen, this is great, but we need much more. And I tell you why. And in fact, I'm not telling you, I'm bringing someone from Puerto Rico to tell you. And I make those connections and those bridges, which... Puerto Rican people don't have to feel that only the diaspora needs to speak for them. They can speak for themselves and we will help them get there and we will help them push and elevate their voices so that we don't have to be translating for them. They can say what they need to say directly. Oh, I love it. Yes, definitely. Being the amplifier to the microphone rather than the microphone. And that's very important, if I may add, because Puerto Ricans have been coming to this country since the 1800s. And the diaspora who have done a really much better job at listening at the people we left behind. And there is decades of history that shows that we could have done better. And so for me, the best way is to make the bridge and get out of the way. Yes, we love to see it. Oh my God, you're amazing. And it's been so great talking to you. Can you tell me where folks should follow you or your organization? Yes, for sure. Thank you. So they can find us in Facebook, Diaspora and Resistencia. So it's Diaspora in Resistance, but in Spanish. That's what it is. Um, Twitter is Diaspora Resiste. And Instagram is the same as Facebook, Diaspora and Resistencia. We're also in Tumblr, but Tumblr is basically the same stuff we post on Facebook. (laughs) On Tumblr? Um, Oh my gosh, that's funny. 
And then the actions, I think people should be looking for actions against the Jones Act to remove Puerto Rico from the Jones Act. Very important that we don't fall into this abolish the Jones Act that the neoliberals and the Crush brothers want to push forth because that's not what the Puerto Rican people are looking for or need. We just need to be removed from it. And then the other thing is abolish Act 60, which is a law in Puerto Rico um, that has nothing to do with Congress, but we are helping on that front because Act 60 is the law that is giving an extra tax haven to mm -hmm. foreigners to not have to pay almost no taxes and go and, and have businesses there. And they only have to hire one Puerto Rican employee to be within the law. Um, so it's very, very complex. Um, it has many other acts and laws within that law, but abolish Act 60 is something that they should really look for, um, look for on social media and learn more about. I am joined here in my home studio with Erica Vincent. Erica, can you just tell our listeners who you are, what your pronouns are, what land you're on, and what you do? Yeah, for sure. So hi, everyone. My name is Erica Vincent. I use she, her pronouns, and I am the Network Engagement Director at the PowerShift Network. I'm currently located on unceded Yukai, Muskogee, and Creek land, also known as Lithonia, Georgia. The South. We love to see it. <laughs> All right. So um, PowerShip Network has been deeply involved, obviously, in climate justice work for gone on 17 years, I think now. And you all have your yeah. PowerShip Network convergence coming up. So can you just tell folks a little bit more about the current campaigns that you all are running? Yeah, definitely. I surely can. And thank you so much, Naomi, again, for having me and for asking that question. So uh, you are correct. PowerShip uh, has been around. Um, oh, my goodness. 2006, I believe, 2005, something like that. And incidentally, I have been to every power shift convergence except for one. Uh, we have had, we have had, uh, we had one in 07. I did not go to that one. 09, I was a junior in college. Uh, 11, I was an alum. 13 and 16, we had regional power shifts. So I've been to four um, in varying capacities. Um, both as a student, uh, as uh, an alum who took other students, um, and then as someone who worked for a member organization of the PowerShift Network, formerly known as the Energy Action Coalition. Uh, so it's been a very long time, uh, but uh, I'm really, really excited about the new PowerShift convergence that's happening this year in April. And I'm really excited about the opportunities that we have to showcase all the things that not only PSN, the PowerShift Network specifically is working on, but what our member organizations are working on. I know that we are really dedicated. What I love about working at PSN, and I've actually only been working at PSN on staff for a little over six months, um, but I've been involved with the organization, as I said, since 2009. Uh, and what I really love about working with PSN and the way and the growth of the organization since its inception is really highlighting and uplifting the work that young people are doing in the climate movement, specifically the work that BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color young people are doing in the environmental movement. 
Um, and one of the only kind of, I would say, main projects that PowerShift works on as an organization. So we do a lot of supporting our member organizations with their varying campaigns uh, and projects. And the other beautiful thing about PSN is there's so many different types of organizations working on so many different types of things. But one of the main things that we work on as an organization, we don't do a ton of programming from a staff capacity, but one of the things we do in a fight that we've been involved with a long time uh, is the Line 3 campaign and the Stop Line 3 project. And so the most important pieces about Line 3 is Enbridge Energy, which is a multinational energy corporation, uh, has proposed and been granted the permits in a very rushed sense uh, to build this new pipeline when of course, we all know we should be moving away from fossil fuels. And as President Biden um, and other folks have said that they have a commitment to um, mitigating climate change, we should be moving away from building any new pipelines. Uh, they have proposed and been granted the permits to build a pipeline through northern Minnesota um, that will go towards Wisconsin, I believe. Uh, and that pipeline will tear right through sacred lands of indigenous people and tearing through most of that land is violating. 1854 and 1855 treaties with indigenous nations. And, you know, America has a history <laughs> of not uh, honoring uh, treaties uh, with indigenous people and our indigenous siblings. And so, you know, Enbridge is expanding the tar sands industry when we should be moving away from fossil fuels. Uh, and this pipeline is very dangerous in the sense that it will, you know, pipelines leak. I think it's always interesting to me when energy companies talk about the safety of their structures, uh, the safety of coal plants. You know, we've we've added all these safety measures or we've added all these safety measures to our pipelines. But at the end of the day, you know, oil spills happen, pipelines leak. And if that pipeline is completely constructed, it will leak into the Mississippi River. So it will directly um, endanger uh, indigenous communities and communities all up and down the Mississippi River. Uh, and the most important pieces is that there are a number of organizations, uh, Rise Coalition, Honor the Earth, Indigenous Environmental Network, along with other nations of indigenous people in and around Northern Minnesota and across the country that are fighting against uh, the building of this pipeline. And so Enbridge was granted their permits uh, right at the end of the Trump administration. Those permits were rushed through. Uh, and now President Biden has the opportunity to halt construction uh, construction had already started uh, late last year, and Enbridge is building it very quickly um, because there are a number of tribes and organizations that have uh, lawsuits against Enbridge. And so they're building it very quickly because if those lawsuits are seen um, before they're done building it, they will have to stop building it. If those lawsuits are able to review them um, and they're seen in front of a judge, those they'll have to stop or halt construction. However, if they are able to complete the pipeline, they'll just get a slap on the wrist or a fine or something like that. Uh, so it's really important for us to make sure that we are, you know, being very vocal about this particular fight uh, when it comes to stopping line three. And most of the people that are doing a lot of this uh, resistance against line three are young people, uh, are young people of color, our young people, our uh, allies and accomplices across the country and across that more northern Minnesota and Midwest region. And so bringing it back around to the power shift convergence that's happening 
it's going to be very important for us to, um, and something that PowerShift is so dedicated to, is building the hard skills, building the knowledge and the political education of young people. Having young people have the opportunity to share that information with each other so that we can fight structures and systems like Enbridge is feeding into uh, and hopefully halt the construction of these really dangerous structures and hopefully bring us into a clean energy future that is not just clean, but is also just and equitable for all of us uh, because it's so important uh, for our health and for the health of the people uh, that we live with um, on this land. Yes, and thank you so much for giving us that very concise overview about what is happening uh, when it comes to Line 3 and pipeline construction. I know a lot of environmentalists have been making the connections between the response to the coronavirus pandemic and the response to um, accelerating climate destruction. And so could you kind of, for our listeners, explain those connections between what the state response to COVID-19 has been and the state response to climate destruction and where, you know, we can make a connection uh, or predict kind of what future responses might be like? Yeah, that's such a great question and such an interesting uh, connection to make. I think for me, you know, environmental injustice and the injustice of our healthcare system are so intertwined. It's so interesting to me to think about the, the response um, and really the state violence that's been inflicted. And, you know, I, I often say the pandemic is happening to all of us, yes, but it's not happening to all of us in the same way. It's not happening to all of us in the same rate. And we saw how um, people of color, especially Black people, were more likely at the height of the pandemic to succumb to this virus, uh, just like Black people are at the height of, you know, pollution um, and that, you know, in some of the dirtiest um, polluted atmospheres and environments, how, how, how Black people are more likely to succumb in those ways. In the beginning of the pandemic, I remember uh, there weren't enough tests, you know, in mostly Black and Indigenous communities, there were not enough tests. So people were not able to get access to testing. Towards, you know, later last year, it may have been more accessible for some people, but I also know I sp I'm speaking from a place of privilege. Um, uh, and so I know that that's not true for everyone. But, you know, we see that how so many people did not have access to tests. Then in Black and Brown communities, the hospitals filled up quicker because of the lack of access to healthy um, alternatives to going out in public or going out in highly um, populated places. We saw that how uh, our hospitals filled up quicker in many rural areas of color and had just no room for people to be able to get the adequate care that they needed. And similarly, on the flip side, in the climate crisis, when we're looking at areas and regions that are more polluted, if we think about, you know, Cancer Alley, for example, um, which um, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. Um, it is an area in the Gulf region where people were more likely to get cancer from the groundwater because of all of the industry in the area. And so I think that when we're thinking about how climate change and how climate change disproportionately impacts people of color and how the COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately impacted uh, people of color. We see many similarities, especially when it comes to the healthcare crisis and how Black people don't have the access, Black and Brown people don't have the access. Also, what we've seen is the response 
Um, you know, it's not as easy for people of color, uh, for black people, for black and brown people to just simply not have to go to work or simply be able to work from home. Uh, that is not a reality in many uh, black communities uh, where, you know, we see uh, many people working in the service industry. That's not, they're not, that's not possible. And even if it is, I thought a lot about when a lot of children were home, especially black and brown children were home, especially in rural areas, um, and especially living in Georgia. I'm from New Jersey, um, but I've been in Georgia since 2006. Um, and, you know, the thought of the idea of uh, high-speed internet access, you know, this assumption that everyone has high-speed internet access in their home, and the understanding that so many children, so many people do not have high-speed internet access in their home, either can't afford it or their family doesn't have it for whatever reason, and how many children in both inner city and rural areas, schools were having to provide that. Um, and if they couldn't, then those children were unable to do their schoolwork. And so the lack of access, uh, the lack of resources, um, the lack of opportunity, uh, the lack of care that the state takes and that our government often takes in making sure that we are all able to have the same access when we're dealing with the pandemic, both from a health perspective, but also from an access perspective, um, is very telling of the way that we value life um, in this country and whose life is valued. Frankly, what I've seen just in closing is um, very much a kind of every person for themselves type of situation. You know, unfortunately, it's something that this country has never shied away from in the sense of a very per every person for himself or every person for, for themselves type of situation. And it's something that our government has oftentimes not only not shied away from, but leaned into, you know, figure it out. We're all figuring it out. So you figure it out. And when we're dealing with systems of oppression where people have been not only not given access to things, but frankly had access revoked um, and intentionally revoked in a historical perspective, it does not surprise me, although it does sadden me uh, to see the lack of care both from an environmental perspective and also from a perspective with the pandemic. The people that live on this land, whether they have immigrated here or were born here or had this culture thrusted or uh, had this culture built on top of them, um, are not given, not all of them, not all of us, are given adequate access to healthcare, um, both when we see in the pandemic, as well as when we see environmental health as an issue. And so it is definitely on us to look at those la that lack of access and to look at the way the different ways in which people are treated and to see how we can make that better and correct those systems um, of inequity. Right. And I feel like a lot of the very institutionalized and internalized racism makes these outcomes and disparities seem as if they're natural to a lot of folks. But right. as you're saying, these are legislative political decisions that then in turn are impacting the health and the lifespan of Black and Brown in Native communities all across uh, this empire. And so I kind of just wanted to delve a little bit more into that and ask you, what roles do white nationalism and state violence play in climate catastrophe? I'm really glad you asked this question. We did a webinar late last year. I hosted the webinar about white nationalism and state violence uh, when it comes to climate change. And it was really well 
attended and I appreciate everybody who joined and I was really, really excited to host it. And I had a great student leader with me and a great expert. Um, and we really talked about what white nationalism is uh, and why it is important in the conversation around climate. And one of the things that I wanted to start with in that webinar and I, and I wanted to point at is how white nationalism is taught to all of us from a very young age. So this idea around uh, the white savior complex, you know, who, who are the white saviors um, of the environmental space? Um, and I, I brought up uh, Teddy Roosevelt, someone who people would consider an icon uh, in the environmental space. I brought up John Muir, uh, of course, the founder of the Sierra Club. And then I also brought up um, some somebody that I feel like some people learn about um, in elementary school and some folks don't, uh, but Johnny Appleseed. So those were the three people I brought up in this conversation around how white nationalism is taught to us from a very young age um, and how white saviorism is a, a lens through which we see so many different things. Wait, um, and can, can so we get the tea on Johnny Appleseed? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so uh, I'll give you I'll give you the tea on all three of them very quickly. So um, first of all, starting with Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt was this like, you know, many people would say that he wanted to protect wild spaces and was, you know, the president that was the most uh, committed to national parks and how, you know, he was so committed to that. And the same person, you know, was quoted in saying, um, uh, you know, a, a good Indian is a dead Indian or something to that nature. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not that far off. You can find that quote. Um, uh, the same with John Muir. Many of us know the whole stories about John Muir and the questionable things he said about indigenous people in his notebooks. Um, and Sierra Club has had to, you know, reconcile that history many times and have many articles and blogs on their website about that. Um, but Johnny Appleseed is interesting uh, because I learned about Johnny Appleseed when I was younger in school and about how Johnny Appleseed was this person who thought that everyone should have access to apples and planted apples all over the country and wore a, a pot on his head and no shoes and walked the country planting apple seeds. And the truth about Johnny Appleseed, number one, is that Around that time when Johnny Appleseed was alive, wherever you planted crops, um, you were able to stake claim to that land. Oh, no. So, <laughs> so uh, many of the places where he planted crops, he was able to stake claim to that land and then sell the land off. So that's number one. Um, number two, many children are get, you know, these, you know, how kids get these activity pages where they can color and it tells you about the historical figure that they're that they're talking about on this activity page. Children will get these, you know, pages still in school today. You know, it's not like this was years ago. I'm 32 and that, you know, I learned about it when I was in elementary school. And I saw one of my indigenous Facebook friends talk about her daughter learning about it very recently. I and mean, her daughter, I think is five. You know, Johnny Appleseed taught the natives to use apples for uh, medical purposes. And they exchanged these, um, you know, amicable recipes on medicine and other opportunities. Um, and it was so funny because I was seeing my Facebook friend talk about this. And she was saying like, Johnny Appleseed didn't teach natives to do anything. If anything, we taught him and everyone else <laughs> to use uh, herbs and food as medicine. 
Um, and then additionally, uh, Johnny Appleseed did not plant uh, apples that were edible. So what people don't know is that the original apple, the original species of the plant, um, it's not edible. It's used to make uh, fermented, basically beer or fermented liquor. Um, and so um, the way that we teach uh, children about this man um, who was also, it's not like he was this like amicable, lovely, warm character. He was, you know, kind of a recluse, kind of an oddball, you know, was oftentimes kicked out of places for his um, uh, bizarre ideas or ideals. It's interesting how we teach children, both through Johnny Appleseed and other historical figures, that the white man is the savior. And we are teaching that to children in a very manipulative way and in our elementary schooling and in our elementary curriculum. And with that being said, we are almost feeding white nationalism into the curriculum of this white superiority, of this white saviorism. And then to, to, you know, translate that, you know, I've been talking about historical figures, but to translate that to now, I think it's really important for us to think about how the environmental movement has looked over the course of the past 20, 30 years. Um, you know, from the beginning, from Earth Day, um, starting in the late 20th century, and the idea around, you know, only white people care about the Earth. Look at all of these white historical figures that have cared about the Earth and have created these organizations um, that care about the Earth. And the idea, you know, for me as someone who considers herself an eco-womanist um, and thinks about how myself, my spirituality, and my connection to the earth um, are all intertwined as a black woman and thinking about how, of course, we know our indigenous siblings have always preached caring for the land. Um, it's really important for us to remember that people of color have always cared about the environment and this white nationalist um, ideology that really we've been fed and we've been fed through our schooling is so damaging to the larger environmental movement. And it's time now for us, and that's why PSN is so dedicated to the lifting up of youth voices and especially youth voices of color and especially black and brown youth voices. The reason for that is because those are the voices that aren't normally heard and those are the voices that are most impacted. And historically, those are the voices that have always cared about the environment. And so the way that we are teaching environmentalism and the way that we are thinking about it from a white nationalism perspective is really ingrained in us. Um, and we talked about that a little bit on our webinar. If people are interested, they can go to our YouTube page to watch it. Um, but really delve into how we're thinking about um, the way that the environmental movement looks, the way that we are using conservation in a nationalist way, the way and the way that we are uh, advertising our environmental fights, spaces, and opportunities um, in a really white way, or in a way that uplifts white people, I should say, as the savior of the work. Um, and that's why I always say, you know, if, if black women, black people, indigenous people, uh, people of color are not um, in, anywhere at the helm or anywhere in the vicinity, um, of your environmental work, uh, frankly, you're doing it wrong. And so um, it, is, it is so necessary for us to um, really think about the way that we are approaching these fights um, in a way that is equitable, 
as important as the, the uplifting and the, protecting of the protection of the land and our environment, but also about the equitable way in which we are highlighting the work um, historically of people of color that has always been happening. You're listening to WRIR 97.3 LP, Richmond Independent Radio, with me, Naomi Isaac. You know, making sure that we protect creation is a huge, has been a huge element of Black and Indigenous communities for centuries and generations. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's always just funny to me to hear people say that, like, you know, we need to get rid of all the humans. It's like, no, baby, <laughs> we need to abolish white supremacy. <laughs> and really it's colonialism, right? right? Like it's white supremacy and it's colonialism and wouldn't nobody colonize it except for y'all, so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, if one plus one is two. <laughs> but we're moving into our final question. So can you tell us from your position as, you know, someone who, works with a 501c3 or a nonprofit, like how, how are you using all your privileges, including that to disrupt white supremacy? I absolutely love this question. Thank you so much. This is a great question. I'm going to use it. Um, I'm going to, but I'll cite my sources. Um, what is my privilege? I, I, I recognize that I have many, many, many layers of privilege. So I am a cisgendered heterosexual black woman. Um, I am college educated in a college graduate. Um, I work, as you said, for a 501c3. I'm able to do this work full time. I'm able to feed my family uh, with this, um, with my salary. I come from, you know, even though a single mother home, I come from a home with a parent who loved me very much. And I recognize, I recognize that privilege very recently. So just thinking about all my privileges, I have quite a few. And I love this question because um, I think it's hard for some people, especially black people, to think about what are our privileges, right? It's like a it's like a guttural reaction when someone asks us, like, what are our privileges? And you're like, what well, I'm part of the oppressed, like the oppressed people. Like, what are you talking about? Um, and so to think about our privileges and to really like dive deep and really figure out what that is, it's an interesting concept, but I, I really love the challenge of the question. And so some of the ways that I use to fight uh, white supremacy with my privileges is to lean into opportunities, uh, lean into the opportunities to speak with great podcasts like Race Capital, uh, leaning into the opportunities to use my voice um, and my skill set that has come from, you know, frankly, years of schooling. I always say like the young people that I work with who are like 19 and 20 and 24, at 19, 20, 24, and 25, like I, I definitely did not have the awareness of some of them uh, and really the knowledge of some of them and really the way that they, the, the many of them see the world. Uh, and so I'm really honored to be able to use that platform that I'm given because I am, you know, a college educated, cisgendered, heterosexual black woman, um, use that opportunities to bridge gaps um, and to build bridges to people, young people, and people who aren't necessarily in the nonprofit world, but who are experts in their own right, despite, you know, their lack of, uh, of some degree that someone said makes them legitimate or uh, valid. Uh, and so making spaces at various tables and also building our own tables 
where we can uplift the voices of people who don't have uh, that type of, you know, capitalistic, accepted, quote unquote, um, letters behind our name or degrees on our mantle. Um, it's definitely a way that I use my privilege to fight white supremacy um, because I know because I know that you know the academic system in and of itself in a lot of ways. Um, and I love you know I went to Spelman College. I love my school. I love uh, you know the time that I spent there. And also I recognize that academia can be some of the most oppressive and white supremacist spaces, even um, when you go to an HBCU. The idea around academia in and of itself, regardless of where you go, um, is definitely, you know, crafted um, to sift out <laughs> and, uh, you know, put some of us ahead of the rest of us. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not blind to that as much as I um, love and appreciate and revere um, my alma mater. I've been taught more about the environment, more about water, more about uh, healthcare, more about food access from Miss Mary in the neighborhood than I have from any school teaching or any class. So can you just tell folks, you know, I know Power Shift Network, like I said in the beginning, has your convergence coming up. And I believe, isn't Dr. Angela Davis speaking? She is. We're all very excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell, tell folks where they can follow y'all's work and how they can keep up with the convergence. Yes. So we are so excited to be bringing the 2021 Power Shift Convergence to the folks. We were supposed to be uh, in New Orleans, Louisiana for our convergence. That was the plan. Um, everybody's very bummed about not going to New Orleans. Who's not excited about being in New Orleans? I can't count how many times I've been there and I love that place. Um, but regardless, uh, we are still committed to uplifting the work in the Gulf, uh, in Louisiana, um, in the Gulf region, uh, regardless of not physically being in the space. Uh, and so we are leaning into that and there'll be a lot of opportunities to visualize, uh, to witness, uh, New Orleans artists and speakers at the event. Angela Davis, Dr. Angela Davis is speaking um, on the second day of the Convergence on the 17th, I believe. Uh, the Convergence is April 16th through the 25th virtually. Uh, and again, Dr. Angela Davis is speaking on the second day and we are all very excited as a staff to have her. Um, and I'm really excited about the session because she'll actually be being, being interviewed by two um, of our shining youth leaders, uh, Jamie Margolin from uh, Zero Hour and Destiny Hodges from Generation Green, two dynamic young people who are leading their own youth organizations. They will be interviewing Angela Davis. So I'm really excited for Destiny and Jamie. Um, and I'm really excited for PSN to have uh, Dr. Angela Davis with us. And then we'll have all week, we will have awesome sessions uh, on hard skills, building hard skills on healing justice, which is so important both for yourself as an activist because this work is hard, um, but also for the communities that you work with. Also, we'll be talking about the Gulf. We'll be talking a lot about the Gulf. We're hoping to have a lot of speakers, both in the 90 minute sessions, as well as in the headliners talking about the Gulf uh, and the work that's happening there and how New Orleans really is and the surrounding areas are really ground zero. Um, for the climate space, the climate movement and environmental justice. Uh, we will have an action day. We are trying to 
uplift actions that are happening all over the country. That action day is actually on Earth Day, the 22nd of April. Uh, and we'll be uplifting and bringing light to all these act different actions that are happening. Uh, we'll have an opportunity fair uh, where we will um, offer the opportunity for people to hear from other folks on career panels, talking about various industries that they're a part of, uh, both, you know, we're talking about mental health, we are talking about uh, union and file work members, we are talking about um, academia from an education perspective as well as from a research perspective. And we hope that you will join us. Um, powershift2021.org is the website for the convergence. You can register now. I would encourage you to register before the 26th. You register before the 26th of March, you'll be guaranteed a swag bag, which will have a t-shirt and all this other fun stuff in it. But you can register after that if you like, of course, uh, up, up to and through the conference. And um, it's gonna be great. It's gonna be really, really exciting. I've, I've seen a lot of the programming that's being approved and coming through and being scheduled. And I'm, I'm really excited about the opportunity. And then of course, you can also follow us on PowerShift underscore network on Instagram and PowerShift net on Twitter. Uh, and all of our links for all the opportunities to join us for the convergence and to just learn more about the organization. Um, you can find all of those links on our social media as well. So I'm Thelonious Cook. I go by he and him. I'm a farmer. Uh, grew up in the Tidewater, Virginia area. My farm is located on the eastern shore of Virginia. That's uh, Northampton County. Uh, and it's family-owned land. I'm sitting on about seven uh, acres or so. So can you tell us a little bit more about your farm, Mighty Thundercloud Edible Forest? Yeah, yeah. So um, I started in 2015. Um, the first year, I, you know, I did an apprenticeship, and then I really uh, started farming my land in 2016. And I grow pretty much anything and everything, um, vegetables, herbs, fruit. I do hemp uh, for CBD. Um, this year, I'm hoping to do a fiber crop because uh, I'm interested in sustainable building, you know, as well as other uh, uses for, uh, for hemp. Yeah, really big on ethnic crops. Um, so, um, you know, I grow things like Callaloo, Jamaican pumpkins, you know, um, cause we do have a big population of, you know, Jamaicans and West Africans in my region. Uh, and I also grow things like, uh, Asian greens, bok choy, um, you know, so, uh, anything that's, uh, interesting, you know, that I come across, I try to grow. Why, why do you think it's so important for black folks to kind of maintain this legacy that, you know, our people have always had since before enslavement about uh, taking care of and cultivating the land. I mean, the main reason or the initial reason uh, and why I actually uh, got started into farming was just about health. It's expensive to eat healthy, you know? And um, so I always appreciated being able to have access to, you know, uh, locally grown food. You know, growing up, we always had a, you know, a garden in the backyard so, you know, as I got older, you know, obviously I didn't like it too much as a, as a kid, you know, having chores, you know, picking beans and stuff like that while my friends were out, you know, playing. But, um, you know, when I had to start actually buying my own food, you know, um, I, I really did look back on my upbringing, 
you know, was really thankful about having access to healthy food. And then as you start to get older, you know, you start reaching in your 30s, you really start to think about that. And also growing up in a in a neighborhood where, you know, the local corner stores and stuff like that, there isn't a huge supply of healthy things. I mean, you can search, you know, for something, but most of our people don't have, um, you know, uh, access to uh, to healthy food or, um, you know, even culturally appropriate uh, food sources. So it was mainly out of that, um, you know, wanting to first uh, produce food for myself and my family and friends, and then also uh, for uh, my community. Yeah, and then there's the other side of it about land ownership. As you mentioned, you know, we come from you know, a, uh, a history or ancestry of agriculturalists. Uh, one of the prime reasons why we were, you know, brought here in the first place. And then just seeing like uh, the years of black owned land being lost and stuff like that. So when I had the opportunity to return to my family, you know, land that was, you know, to me, it was, it was very meaningful. And I think it's something that uh, we all need to do. Those of us who are fortunate to have, you know, land in our families, uh, we need to make sure that we uh, we hold on to it. So you're also the founder of the 1619 Fest. Can you tell us a little bit more about that project and what the focal point of it was in terms of telling the history of the land and the people that have worked on it? Yes. Yeah, so that came out of sort of my other love of, of, of history, you know, uh, growing up in the Tidewater region. Um, you know, this is basically where, you know, the use of African slave labor all started, you know, right on Old Point Comfort, you know, uh, right on uh, Fort Monroe, Hampton, Virginia. You know, that's where the first, you know, ship was brought. And so, you know, as 2019 approached, um, you know, it was something that was just weighing on me, like knowing the history, you know, that that first ship arrived you know, in 1619, 400 years ago, you know, was was compelled to do something. You know, I first just talked about it, you know, with a few of my friends, you know, and they encouraged me to actually do something. And I just, you know, was was thinking about organizing some sort of gathering where, you know, vendors could come out, maybe we could get some, um, you know, some musicians and, and kind of really commemorate, you know, uh, the memory of those those first Africans and their descendants, you know, uh, who, you know, they endured a tremendous amount of, you know, suffering and many died here, you know, thousands of miles away from their home and was never properly, you know, recognized. So, and just knowing that um, that type of history is not something that, you know, I was taught in school, you know, growing up in Hampton, I was never taught, <laughs> you know, that this was the you know, the site of the the, uh, the first landing point. And that to me is just uh, mind boggling, you know, so I wanted to do my part and, um, you know, telling that story, you know, which is not just our story, but it's it's the story of America. Like America doesn't happen without the uh, involuntary contribution, you know, those first Africans. So, uh, and, it, and it's also about you know, uh, continuing the, the fight for you know, reparations and, and those sort of things. So it all sort of ties together with what I do. So you said that you like history. Could you give us maybe a quick little history lesson about the context or the ways that land theft and withholding land from the people has been traditionally used as a tool of white supremacy in the South? Oh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, even when you look at what's going on uh 
right now in the, in the present, you know, there's a number of recent legislation that a lot of the uh, legacy farmers, you know, a lot of elder farmers that I know are really rejoicing because of, you know, decades and decades of fighting against racial discrimination, you know, within like the USDA, which has been, you know, intentionally, you know, government sanctioned attempt to take land from, you know, from, from black ownership. I mean, and, and this is, this is land that I'm talking about in the past century, like the 1900s that was purchased, you know, by, um, by black people that they had to, you know, struggle and fight to get. And then just in the, in the process of trying to build a, a livelihood, um, trying to get, you know, equitable resources to, to you know, compete and that sort of thing. Um, you had a lot of um, farmers and, and actually I'll just, you know, kind of, you know, go backwards, you know, to um, like the 1990s, there was a report that came out, you know, that really um, put a spotlight on the, the history of racial discrimination with the USDA. And um, that's called the um, Pigford case which a number of farmers uh, came together and actually filed a lawsuit, you know, against the USDA because of this discrimination, you know, and they were awarded a so-called, um, you know, settlement that would basically cancel uh, this enormous amount of debt that they had accumulated, you know, because when you have, you know, farmers were applying for, um, you know, loans, and then those loans weren't always being dispersed in a timely manner, you know, interest rates were changing, all sorts of things were being done. And you had all these farmers left with huge amounts of debt. In some cases, they're paying, you know, like, you know, 20s and 30s of thousands of dollars in just interest. So then you start having just this mass, uh, you know, uh, foreclosures of Black owned land and stuff like that. You know, and now many of these farmers, you know, who are, you know, up in age, you know, who have been fighting for their life, you know, just to have some land to pass on to the next generation. And meanwhile, you have the younger generation who have looked at this and said, no way, that's not a, a life that I want to, <laughs> you know, get into. Like, so they've abandoned the land, gone up to the urban city to pursue other type of jobs. So, so you have this, this gap between, you know, this, this older generation and no next, you know, returning generation to sort of take over that land. You know, so that's just sort of the, you know, the recent history. And then we have, you know, earlier attempts back in the, you know, early 1900s where you had a um, huge uh, amount of, you know, Black landowners at the end of uh, slavery. But then you had, you had lynchings and stuff going on that, you know, forced people off their lands. You had a lot of distrust with the government. So you had landowners that didn't have wills and stuff like that. So then, you know, we also have, um, an issue of this air property, you know, um, where the land is now split into all these various heirs, you know, um, and it's, it's nearly impossible to get it under one consolidated, you know, ownership. So that's been another strategy, you know, that has um, led to just uh, land loss, you know, in the, in, the, in the past century. So heavy. I mean, thank you for situating us in that context, because, uh, I feel like a lot of the ways that you even explained it, like through the lynchings that forced people off the land, like that's like actually really important. And then, you know, when you think about those huge debt walls that we see our elders um, going through, like right now, 
I know there are a lot of people that are really interested in getting into earth work and farm work. And it's like, but where's the money going to come from? That's just crazy to see like those issues that like started during reconstruction persist today in such like an even worse way. And there is a, there is a new um, sort of movement of, you know, returning generation uh, farmers, but it's about now, uh, you know, connecting them uh, to landowners, you know, um, so we are starting to see that, you know, at least in my circles and my networks, um, you know, people coming back. Can you uh, describe or kind of compare your experiences farming here versus your experiences uh, farming on continental Africa? Yeah, yeah. Well, let me first just say, like, uh, having the pleasure of going, you know, to the continent was just uh, an amazing experience and had a, you know, indelible, you know, uh, impact on my life. Yeah, and you know, I when I went there, I stayed with the host family, you know, originally in um, Tanzania, and um, Tanzania is a very big, you know, agricultural, you know, um, country, and just seeing that that sort of connection, I got a chance to journey up through Uganda and South Sudan and, you know, Kenya and Ethiopia. And it's all along that sort of now river valley area where the land is so fertile. You know, it's like, you don't even need anything. I was jealous really of the soil, <laughs> you know, like, uh, I mean, you can pretty much put anything out there and it, and it grows just very rich, dark, you know, earth. And you know, the quality of food that it produces in terms of vegetables and, and fruit. You know, um, I came back to the U.S. very disappointed. <laughs> like the taste of banana, I was like, or the taste of tomato. I'm thinking like this, it doesn't taste right. Like I'm, I'm now spoiled. So I really, I, I wasn't actually farming at this point when I first got a chance to go, but I've, I've since gone um, several times since I've been farming. So I, I'm always interested to, um, you know, to, to be more keen on noticing the type of techniques that, you know, the farmers there, you know, are, are doing. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm learning things. Like it's always an exchange of knowledge, you know, just seeing how they, uh, what crops they grow together, you know, the techniques, tools and stuff uh, people are using. But I mean, they do face some challenges, um, primarily uh, with climate change. Uh, you know, the farmers are, able to um, predict like the rainy seasons less and less. So yeah, having to, uh, you know, switch to more, um, you know, drought uh, tolerant, you know, crops and stuff like that and, and to find creative ways, you know, for irrigation and stuff like that, that's been a challenge for sure. Okay, so we are wrapping up. So what would you say is your privilege and how are you using that to continue to disrupt the myth of white supremacy? Well, my, uh, that's a big question. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely privileged uh, to own land. And, um, you know, I'm thinking a lot about education, you know, um, educating our communities on food and not just, you know, you see these commercials, you know, these, uh, you know, Popeyes and all this sort of thing. And it's really you know, having an effect on our health. We have all these effects on our children. It comes down to what they have access to, you know, in our in our communities. Yeah, so I'm using my privilege to um, provide access. You know, um, you know, people can use uh, food stamps at my farm. 
you know, I try to do some, you know, pop-ups and make myself available and just educate people. And I'm also working with getting more awareness, like for people who, who do have EBT, like being able to know where they can spend it, you know, so if they, you know, if there's a map where they can say, oh, there's a farmer here that I can actually spend my food because they may not know. Okay, well, how can people keep up with uh, your work and follow you? And are there any future projects that you're working on that we should keep an eye out for? I'm most active on Instagram at Edible Forest. And then my website is MightyThunderCloud.com. And um, uh, up and coming projects. I'm doing a a hempcrete building right now on my farm. I've just been experimenting uh, with that. Um, And, you know, if you're interested in, and being a part of my weekly uh, vegetable deliveries, uh, you know, hit me up, DM me on um, on IG, and uh, I'm getting ready, prepared for this uh, this coming seasons. I always say, eat with the seasons. You know, you don't need to eat the iceberg lettuce all year round. <laughs> Well, that is all for this week on Race Capital. Reminder that Race Capital airs every Wednesday at 10 a.m. on WRIR LP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. If you like this show and want to support our work, remember to visit patreon.com slash race capital and subscribe. Become a patron of the show. As always, solidarity to those involved in the struggle, and thank you for listening. Amma Johnny, 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 Amma